from KQED. A big debate seems to be brewing over the smallest wages in California, the minimum wage. Another fight could be coming down the pike here in 2016. That's the focus of this week's California Politics Podcast for the week ending July 24th. I'm John Myers from KQED News, along with Anthony York of the Grizzly Bear Project. Marisa Lagos of KQED News is on vacation this week. I was on vacation last week, so we have uh, switched places. And I, I never rest. I never rest. <laughs> I was going to say, you not only never rest, but you're in that semi-vacation mode from our Southern California uh, bureau, we'll call it. Yeah, on single parent duty, so it's not really a vacation. Not really. Oh, you know, I, that's we're having true. a hell of a time though. <laughs> you, you and the small one having a good time. So let's talk uh, minimum wage this week. We're also going to talk a little bit about the governor's trip to the Vatican, though. Marisa and Anthony talked about it, I think, uh, very thoroughly last week. So we'll just kind of say what happened since he's actually been there this week. Uh, we also want to do our weekly side dish and a little bit about a pretty unusual initiative that could be on the ballot in 2016 that would really possibly change the debate about taxes and programs for the poor. But first, let's talk about the minimum wage, since we have heard so much about that over the last few days. When you look at this week, uh, two big headlines in California stand out. One, the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors uh, voting to put in place a $15 an hour minimum wage there, a narrow three to two vote on the Board of Supervisors, with the deciding vote being one of the newest members, former U.S. Labor Secretary Hilda Solis. And then uh, by middle of the week, uh, actually early in the week, I guess I should say, the University of California um, and uh, Janet Napolitano, the president, announcing a $15 minimum wage for the lowest wage earners at the UC. And then, of course, there's been that national rumbling. I should uh, mention Vice President Biden was in Los Angeles this week, also talking to $15 minimum wage. And then there was the news out of New York, Mayor Bill de Blasio, who apparently is Jerry Brown's new friend, but that's a, an allusion to the Vatican part. We'll get to that in a moment. But also talking about a $15 minimum wage there. So here's the way I'm, I'm wondering about this. Mr. York, tell me what you think. I mean, we've been talking about the minimum wage in California on a statewide level, it seems like, for the last several years. Uh, do you sense this is this is different? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's higher <laughs> for for starters. Uh, you know, Governor Brown signed a uh, uh, a minimum wage increase that took it from eight to uh, it, it, our minimum wage is statewide is scheduled to go to ten dollars an hour next year. Um, and we've seen some cities around the country, Seattle, San Francisco, um, adopt fifteen dollar minimum wages. Uh, the city of Los Angeles, b- before the county did as well. Um, you know some of the places where it's very expensive to live. I mean, I think, I think, yeah, the details are are different. I mean, pretty significantly. I mean, you look at what the federal minimum wage is. This is about double of uh, this would be a, a doubling of the federal minimum wage, and so. Um, you know, when you're talking about Biden talking about it. So I, I think it is different. And I think it does get back to, you know, a lot of the the uh, the debates about income inequality. We had, you know, new stats about about the poor in California uh, from a couple of different studies the Annie Casey Foundation and the United Way, both releasing new studies over the past week. Um, showing these really troubling numbers about about poverty and 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 the difficulty that working families are having as well. Um, so, you know, I, I is it different? I mean, it's related, but it, but I, I think it is part of a, a a big national discussion. I think one that Hillary Clinton wants to have in twenty sixteen. 
Um, and, you know, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how the business community uh, reacts to this and, and how this plays out politically. Well, and I think it's going to also be interesting to see if what would just stay at this top line analysis for a moment, uh, how uh, Governor Brown reacts. I mean, because he he certainly struck the deal a few years ago for that um, slightly improving minimum wage over a period of years, uh, signed into law. And as you said, right, it's been gradually ticking up. I think the last uh, uptick is next year, right? Right. Right. But this is above that. I mean, $15 is significantly above that. So another 50% increase. Yeah. Where does that relationship lie between the business community and the governor and the governor who has been resistant to the calls? And then we have to, of course, mention that we still have a proposal in the works at the state capitol when the lawmakers come back in August, which would include the indexing issue, which we've talked about a lot with the inflation um, adjustments that would be automatic in it. But I mean, where the governor gets to land on this issue, I think is going to be interesting as well. It will. And especially in the context of some of the stuff we're going to talk about later in this podcast. I mean, um, you know, generally we're, we're going to be having a discussion about revenues in this state, um, you know, and, and, um, uh, you know, and the minimum wage. I mean, it, 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 it all, you know, gets at, uh, you know, not only the poverty and inequality issues, but also the business climate issues, and and how is it that that you can, um, you know, especially if California go, goes it alone uh, on a fifteen dollar wage, where you know, what's that going to do if if there is no federal action, if the if the minimum wage is half that in neighboring states, uh, you know, what sorts of additional economic pressures does that put on businesses in California? So let's talk about the one that uh, got some attention uh, on its own, which was the University of California, the uh, announcement by Janet Napolitano that uh, the UC would up its minimum wage for its lowest uh, paid workers, which, you know, and and I think one of the things that does kind of get lost when you start looking at it is that it's not, I think, in total, a large number of employees of the University of California who are at the minimum wage. But nonetheless, it does cost money. There's uh, some number uh, floating around out there um, uh, of exactly of what the cost would be, and especially uh, $14 million a year, I believe, is what the officials talked about. And then, of course, that comes back to this issue about UC funding and tuition and everything else we've talked about. And there were Republicans who were none too happy to, to take a moment to jump into right. that fray this week, including the Republican leader of the state assembly, Kristen Olson of Modesto, who said, wait a minute, you know, what about all of these things we talked about, about the UC and money, and now you've got money for this? I, I've got a great solution, though. I've got I've got the solution. Go for it. Can pay for that, for, that $14 million as budget dust for UC. Easily can be paid for with a, a cap on administrative salaries for the UC. Uh, we've seen, you know, administration costs at the University of California growing tremendously. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I don't know. How about it? What say you? <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, no I'm gonna, dodge, we'll throw dodge, that out to dance. our podcast audience. <laughs> yeah, what about our podcast audience? They can weigh in. Maybe some kind of hashtag. Uh, Cap the wage. Cap the wage. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say hashtag York's UC idea, but people will come up with their own. They're, yeah. they're, they're very oh, I'm clever. Sure. I'm sure. The, uh, the flags at UC already love me, you know. They've dismissed me as a quote online blogger. So I think, as you and I said, what's an offline blogger? But that's another podcast. That's another podcast. But okay, so again, all of this circling around makes you wonder: Is the political climate different here, or is there, you know, because you referenced a, a, a presidential campaign that could have these very same themes 
in 2016. And, yeah. you know, and this does get back to the question from a policy perspective, too, I mean, because your point is, you know, is well noted about uh, the about the gap that would exist between, say, California and another state that didn't uh, pay as much in its minimum wage. And I was in one of those states, Texas, this week briefly, but that's another discussion I'll mention in a moment. Uh, you were not in Texas. You were in Austin. That's that's an island within Texas. It's like the Vatican within Italy. Fair enough. That's, you are alluding to our second topic. Easy right. there. Right. Okay. But, but, but to the point about these disparities in, in – um, in jurisdictions, that does raise the question about a statewide effort. And do you need a statewide effort versus these local efforts, right? Yeah, well, and especially in the places that are so expensive to live. And, and you know, I mean, you're talking about Los Angeles or San Francisco, um, you know, other parts of California where the housing market is ridiculous. And, and it's, you know, I mean... What you would need to li- what you need to live in these cities, uh, you know, to live a, a, a comfortable middle class life in these cities is, uh, you know, the numbers are mind boggling. But so, what about the other areas? I mean, like the rural areas and the areas right. that have so much poverty and and all these other problems, and they also have higher unemployment, which the business right. community would point out to say this could exacerbate, I suppose. Well, and, and and so that's just to your question about whether whether this can be solved locally or in a series of localities versus. Uh, versus a statewide solution, and and what what the uh, what the impacts of a statewide minimum wage hike of of this magnitude might be, um, you know, and and again, I, I think you know you're right to raise to to uh, bring up the governor. I mean, the governor wanted a, a more incremental approach. I mean, he wanted to to make sure that uh, that that the wage went up, but he was against indexing, which you know ties which would uh, hike the minimum wage automatically as inflation increases and the cost of living increases. Uh, he rejected that in the in the bill that he pushed for and that he ended up signing a couple of years ago. And so, um, you know, whether he's ready to come back at this issue again so soon, uh, you know, is far from clear. And, uh, and whether, the, and it'll be interesting to see what sort of pressure, whether uh, what's going on in L.A., what happened in San Francisco, whether that adds to the momentum and the pressure or maybe in some ways, you know, alleviate some of the pressure because in some of our most expensive areas, action is already being taken uh, to deal with, with, uh, with, with the wage issue. So I, I would say as we wrap this one up probably for now, um, one thing that will be interesting to watch, again, back to the state legislation being carried by Mark Leno, state senator, uh, Democrat of San Francisco, uh, the minimum wage increase with the indexing um, element to it. Um, obviously bills have gone to the other house now, so it's in the assembly. Uh, I'll be very interested to watch what the discussion is. And to your point, Anthony, what the business community's reaction is, is there any, uh, and then the governor, does the governor get involved like he did last time behind the scenes? Is there any way to modify the bill before it gets to his desk? Um, it would seem like to me, I mean, given that there's only going to be about a, a month or less of, of the session, uh, in the first couple of weeks or so, we may get a real sense of, of whether that bill lives or dies and this yeah. issue about the governor. Yeah, I mean, you know, just going from, you know, Jerry Brown, I, I, you know, try to predict Jerry Brown at your peril, right? But I, but knowing, you know, having observed him for a while now, I, I'd find it difficult to believe that he would sign another minimum wage increase before the previous increase that he signed goes into, a, has is fully phased in. But but, uh, you know, I guess we'll find out for sure in a couple of months. 
So let's move to uh, topic two on our California politics podcast this week, which is a, a, a brief update to the, um, the fine analysis that you, Mr. York, and Ms. Lagos did uh, uh, last week on the governor's uh, visit to the Vatican. I believe you, uh, didn't you dub him uh, Francesco Due? Uh, something like that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> In case he's looking for another job once this one is over. He did not declare his candidacy, though. He did not. Oh. There, and there was no white smoke. Um, but so the governor had, uh, I would call, if you're looking at the master narrative, the media narrative, the political narrative, the governor had a very good week in the Vatican. Um, he made national and international headlines, uh, countless photos of him um, sitting and talking to people at the Vatican from uh, our own mayors in California that went, uh, Ed Lee of San Francisco, Sam Licardo of San Jose, uh, Bill de Blasio of New York, a photo of them, uh, you know, talking about very deep thoughts. The governor invoking his favorite word again for um, people who are climate change skeptics or critics, troglodytes. That is, uh, this is at least the second time I've heard him use troglodytes in reference to climate change critics. Um, but this was a big week for him. I mean, this was I mean, everything that you all talked about. This was the stage that uh, that he feels comfortable playing on. And it seems like he played it well. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a good stage for for any governor of California. It's a stage that the previous governor of California liked to play on this specific issue. Um, it's one that's global in scope and allows a California governor to transcend the limits of that office. Uh, so, although I did, he did uh, sort of wrestle with the question, "Are you a Catholic?" Which one of the uh, one of the local reporters asked him, and uh, David Siders from the B picked up on and, and wrote about. It. I thought that was sort of an interesting moment, but that's. That's perhaps neither here nor there. And it, he, uh, he dodged it. You, we encourage people to read David's piece. And we should give David a—David gets the Frequent Flyer Awards this does. year, does he not? He I mean, does, yeah. I mean, you know, we could have gone to Rome, maybe. I know you talked about it last week. It was, it was not uh, that in Paris. They weren't your favorites. But China, you know, so ciders, good for him. Yeah, good, good on you. We missed out on that one. Anyway, it, it, was, it was fascinating to watch the coverage, to watch the governor play the stage, and then I think to— to set the stage, as it were, um, for what happens in Paris uh, later this year. The president was talking about the the, the Paris event, uh, the UN event, um, in his appearance on The Daily Show this week. And so there's a, there's a lot of talk going on right now, um, and I think that'll be interesting. And that kind of does briefly bring us back to what happens in August when the legislature reconvenes, too, because one of the issues that is left unresolved is uh, some of the climate change money, the money from cap and trade and where it goes. And you know, and, and people who have been critics of exactly how California is moving forward on this. I mean, one interesting criticism uh, that I read this week, um, our uh, friends at the new nonprofit um, uh, journalism endeavor, Cal Matters, have been doing a series of stories on, on AB 32 and its legacy. But one of the pieces, one of the quotes in there that I don't think uh, got quite as much play that I thought it really stood out to me was longtime uh, energy um analyst um, Severin Bornstein, professor at the University of California, professor, who said simply that perhaps California should not continue to be spending so much time trying to rein in its emissions, given we are a small part of the global problem, but should be spending more time and effort at developing technology that can be exported elsewhere to fight uh, climate change problems. And that's an interesting discussion as to whether or not, you know, how, how should we best use this public, you know, um, dynamic of support about this. Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah. But how do you create a market for that technology if you don't have those, 
those emission mandates in place. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's an issue because that, because that new technology as it comes online is typically more expensive than the dirtier stuff that precedes it. And so if not with the, the iron fist of government, how do you, how do you, uh, incentivize that to happen, especially on an issue like climate change, where, where, you know, the impacts are, are a bit abstract and, and, uh, you know, you have to make connections between the years of drought and the car you drive. I mean, that's not a, that's not an easy connection for, for people to make. Absolutely. I think it could be an interesting discussion, though. Again, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the other part of what happens when the legislature returns, which is the package of bills being carried by Democrats in the state Senate that yep. would double down on, on the state's um, uh, carbon emissions uh, uh, goals. And so it'll be an interesting, an interesting few weeks, I think, on that subject as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the big bill there, SB 350 by the, by uh, Senator DeLeon, uh, uh, that's, you know, it'll be interesting to watch that. And also, I've noticed an uptick in activity from Tom Steyer as well as campaign season gets going and as these issues heat up in California. So let's move to our side dish this week. That's our, uh, our weekly palate cleanser, as I like to call it, just a little morsel to, uh, to, to consider in the world of politics. Um, since I've been gone so long, I'm going to jump in first. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, a little shameless promotion at John Myers, M-Y-E-R-S. And, and this one um, it goes back to something we've talked about on the podcast before, uh, the politics of pot for 2016. All of these efforts swirling around about, um, about an initiative that would legalize marijuana in California, uh, not just the medicinal use, but again, more in the line of how it has been legalized in states like Colorado and uh, Washington State. Uh, and of course, the man at the, the front of a lot of this has been Gavin Newsom, the lieutenant governor of California, who had a report out this week uh, that he played a part in and others played a part in that was interesting because it, to me, set a tone that I think he believes is probably very politically important in 2016, which is that any effort to legalize marijuana, I guess is the conclusion of this report, should be focusing on um, keeping it out of the hands of young people, the control of, um, of a legal substance like marijuana, and not so much focus on taxing it and making money, which has been a lot of what um, pro-legalization folks have talked about for the last several years. Um, but again, I found it fascinating because I think, you know, we've talked about it before, Anthony, Newsom walks up a tight line here. And then he is the guy who is either going to look like a hero or a zero potentially out of something like this. And so that's a marker down there that, that, you know, maybe an, even a nod to law enforcement and others that, you know, those control issues with, with young Californians should be at the forefront anyway. Yeah. I mean, certainly a political issue for him. I mean, he supports legalization, right? But in the abstract, he supports legalization. The question is, will he, will he support whatever ballot measure or one of the ballot measures that go forward in 2016. And you know, we've got a long way to go. We've seen a number of different ideas um, filed with the Attorney General's office, and it'll be interesting to see sort of how that debate shakes out next, whether you know, the conventional wisdom is that if, uh, if, if more than one legalization measure go ahead, then, then they, may, they may all fail. So um, that's sort of the next step in this, is sort of what the quote-unquote pot, pot community, the cannabis community, um, decides to do and whether they're able to come together among themselves uh, politically to, uh, to uh, you know, have a viable option for voters to consider in 2016. 
No doubt we'll be talking about that one more um, as the weeks uh, and months move forward. So let's move to your side dish, Anthony York, who you can find uh, online at Anth- Twitter, I should say, at AnthonyYork49 and at the grizzlybearproject.org. Com. Oh, I'm sorry. Dot com. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You're you're no, no. you're in the you're in the profit making side. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Like my like my podcast profits. Right. They all they all go to the same place. Oh, there it is. So, what's uh, your side dish? Uh, the the return of Meg Whitman, uh, uh, HP CEO and former California Republican gubernatorial nominee, Meg Whitman reemerged this week as the as the national finance chairwoman of the presidential campaign for Chris Christie. Uh, from New Jersey. I thought that was interesting. Um, you know, Whitman had been very close to Romney, to Mitt Romney, uh, who she worked with uh, uh, in the past in the financial sector. And and now uh, uh, Whitman, and along with some other uh, California political types, Jeff Randall, Randall the head of uh, a Republican consulting firm in, in uh, California, um, are on Team Christie. Christie, certainly far from the front runner. Uh, and I you know, thought, thought it noteworthy. I, I don't know what to do with it now that it's noted, but uh, Meg Whit- if you're keeping score at home, Meg Whitman is on Team Christie. Well, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like um, turn that little side dish to keep my little food metaphor. I'm going to turn the plate even a different way and look at it, which is let's not forget that um, Chris Christie and Jerry Brown had a very colorful dust-up a few years yes, ago where, where uh, uh, at the Republican National Convention in 2012 where Chris Christie told a group of California Republicans, Jerry Brown's a retread. And then Jerry Brown basically said, I could, what, challenge you to a foot race or something yeah. like that, which, yeah. you know, of course, got into that issue that, you know, is fair or unfair in politics, the one that Chris Christie has dealt with a lot in terms uh, of, of his overall health. But so, you know, here's a guy that, you know, who's... You know, had the dust up with Brown, and of course, the person that Brown uh, beat when she spent 175 million dollars of her own money. I mean, it's just a, it's a fascinating thing there. I think one Democratic operative said, you know, you know, she's going to help, you know, help show him how to spend a lot of his own money and lose, or something like that. But, uh, but Whitman, you know, she has been quiet on on the political scene ever since that uh, that big defeat in 2010. And uh, this will be interesting, especially, and then one more little dynamic, if I can, out of your side dish. It's a really good side dish, by the way, York. But um, she runs Hewlett Packard, who is a former CEO of Hewlett Packard in this race, Carly Fiorina. Uh, There's just just great little um, side... I I forgot about her. I confess, I totally forgot about her. Great side plots that someone could play out, but uh, let's watch that one keep on going. And uh, uh, Jeff Randall and his team are upstairs here in my bureau in sacramento maybe i'll go knock on their door and ask them some questions so let's let's move to topic uh three our final topic on this california politics podcast and that's this initiative that was uh recently filed with an eye toward ostensibly the 2016 ballot that is um really unlike any of the uh, initiatives that we've seen that have talked about taxes and programs to uh, combat poverty or to help the working poor uh, and Anthony, you wrote about it on the Grizzly Bear Project. Uh, first of all, the thumbnail sketch of what the initiative would do as you read it. Uh, this, it would raise property. We can talk about the, where it the, raises the money from, but it raises money from property taxes to pay for uh, about 8 to $10 billion to pay for a number of uh, early childhood education and welfare programs, uh, expand the earned income tax credit. But uh, all money that's raised for, uh, that's targeted towards children, and uh, and and uh, the, and 
social welfare programs. Well, we really do have to talk about where it comes from, though, right? Absolutely. No, no, no. I mean, where it comes from is, I think, more, more interesting than how it, how it, uh, how it would spend the money. That was what I focused on. Yeah, especially because so often when we've talked about um, changes in the property tax system in California, we invoke the mighty Prop 13 and changing 13 or doing whatever we do, because Prop 13 is property taxes. This is, it, it, it almost seems like to me, um, it's not even, it, it's, it's like a property tax assessment, but it is like a completely separate system. It's a surcharge. It's really a surcharge. It's, it's not... Of, of properties that are, um, that are worth $3 million or more, right. and it, it seems to be agnostic as to whether that is residential or commercial property. But clearly, the point here is people and groups that have more money and are more wealthy and have uh, very valuable properties should have to chip in more. And that money would be, as I see it, right? I mean, earmarked for those programs for low-income California. Yeah, and, and, you know, I looked at it this week, not so much for the initiative itself, but some of the ideas that I put forward. Um, and what was really interesting about this initiative to me, uh, I mean, the spending stuff, fine. I mean, everyone's got their list of how they want to spend money. But um, but the way that it proposed raising money is interesting to me. I mean, look, we're going to have a tax discussion that's going to deal on, with a number of different things. Number one is expanding the upper income taxes of Prop 30 and extending those. Uh, Senator Robert Hertzberg has a, a plan that includes a, a new sales tax on services and some other changes. Uh, that's a new that, that's a new idea or newish idea that's coming forward. And then, and the question is whether this idea sort of uh, breaks through. And, and as those other ideas are being discussed, we have split roll that we talked about the the reassessment of commercial property tax. Now, this idea is sort of it's a progressive property tax. And what's what's fascinating about it to me is that like the sales tax revenues, property taxes are more stable than income taxes. And property taxes are even more stable than sales taxes. Uh, income taxes and capital gains taxes, which Prop 30 focuses on, they fluctuate wildly from year to year. Property tax values are much more stable. And so, um, you know, a, a couple of different things. I went into some details about um, how Mitt Romney would be hit by this proposal and, and some of the some of the political... The political uh, sales sales points for this proposal, uh, as well as some of the problems. I mean, any you know, a lot of businesses that have large real estate footprints in this state would would be hit pretty hard. And so, um, um, you know, I mean, like every other tax proposal out there, it has its winners, its losers, it has its pros and cons. But I, but it's an interesting idea. It's one that I wrote about months ago, just conceptually, of the idea of a progressive property tax and. Would there be a way to do that, to have, to marry these ideas of progressivity, which I think uh, Californians have shown a willingness to ask the rich to pay more, and stability. So, uh, you know, to provide a, a regular stream of revenues that does not fluctuate as wildly as income, as income taxes do. Uh, now, you know, some people uh, like the volatility, and uh, we've created a, prop, uh, a reserve fund, Prop 2, to capture some of those revenues, uh, to, to not spend them in, in these fat years. And certainly uh, groups like teachers' unions, they, they benefit from the volatility because when, the, when, it, when the, the revenue numbers spike, that sets a new floor for school funding, for the school funding guarantee. And so 
um, there are a lot of political reasons and uh, interesting political dynamics that are that are playing out now in the capital. It'll be interesting to see whether whether this idea and this concept breaks through that discussion. Yeah, I want to I want to jump uh, backward on a couple of those because I think the politics here are are interesting. And and again, um, for those of you listening. Uh, Anthony's got a, a, a great write-up on this at grizzlybearproject.com. So a couple of things that really struck me. The first one is, is all right, let's go back to the notion that you said of how Californians um, seem pretty supportive of taxing the rich. Um, polling continues to show that, well, this would ostensibly be taxing only the rich. I mean, right, you can see a campaign that is um, luxurious houses, like this house that you have on the site, by the way. I want to know where that house is. Uh, Shutterstock. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or, um, again, the larger corporations, because part of the Prop 13 fight has been like, you know, the split role that we're going to tax uh, commercial properties or assess their property taxes differently than residential has been, oh, well, what about small businesses? What about the impact to others? Well, again, the $3 million number may may be able to um, change that narrative somehow as just talking about people who have a lot more money or corporations that have a lot more money. But then um, what you just put your finger on, I was going to say the same thing. On the liberal side, uh, the carve-out of this money for those programs is going to strike people who are not part of that money, sure. uh, perhaps as as not something they like. I mean, whether it's uh, teachers, whether it's higher ed advocates who think that higher education is woefully underfunded in the state, Um people who think we've got to do all sorts of things. I mean, infrastructure, look at the debate we're having about roads and bridges and right. the crumbling nature of all of that. Every other um, group who who needs money and who would get money from the normal revenue stream of the state may look at something that is earmarked and say, well, wait a minute. And that has been sure. kind of the history of California in taxation and spending has been a lot of earmarking, that there's not a lot of money in the general till anymore. Everybody gets their part and, and walls it off somehow. Well, and because of that, I mean, look, sales, uh, you know, tax increases to pay for more welfare programs, not probably not the most knee-jerk, politically popular idea. And that's why I sort of downplayed the, the idea of the earmarks and where it's spent and really sort of tried to focus on this new idea about raising revenues. Um, and, uh, you know, and and other groups are looking at sort of the policy, like California Forward is looking at the policy implications of of seeking revenues from different sources, whether it's sales taxes or property taxes or income taxes, that it actually has policy implications. We saw, you know, I mean, remember in the 90s, there was a lot of talk about the fiscalization of land use because local governments could, would, uh, they didn't get any uh, property tax uh Revenues, but they. But if there were sales tax revenues that were generated, then, then that was going to be more valuable to a local government. And so, you saw like big box stores were suddenly very appealing to cities and counties to bring in, and so that and that creates other other issues in terms of urban planning issues and and how our state is laid out and other other policies. So, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's this is a very complicated uh, debate with with very far-reaching consequences, and I think it's one that. Um, you know, it's going to take a while to ramp up, but it's an important one, and it really is sort of a fundamental discussion about our future after Prop 30 and after Jerry Brown, and 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 what financial path 
California decides to go down in as in as much as that is a sort of finite decision. Well, I, t- I totally think you're right that it's very hard to sell um, like, you know, new money for welfare programs. But I do think if there if there was a, um, a period, an era that that might break through the consciousness with all of the talk about the wealth gap and income yep. inequality, this might be it. Yeah, this might perhaps. be the, this might be the time where that conversation could be had. And again, uh, and I know I'm like the one trick pony in talking about this all the time. And I think you even gave me a shout out last week. You were or Ms. Lago said one of the two. This is the easiest it's ever been to qualify. Yeah. Uh, not ever, but it's been to qualify an initiative in, in more than a generation. And so you don't have to have the deepest pockets. And you do get to have a discussion at the legislature once you gather a certain number of uh, signatures under the new rules. And maybe that provokes a discussion somewhere. So it's yeah. it's interesting all the way around. Well, and I know politically that's been an issue. You know, the proponents maybe have enough money to qualify this measure, but not fund, not actually fund a campaign. But what that would do to a Prop 30 extension or any other tax measure that might be on the ballot. There's a lot of, and we've talked about those politics and the conventional wisdom that multiple tax measures would would endanger all of them, although should be noted that Prop 30 passed when the Munger Initiative was on the ballot alongside it. So take that conventional wisdom with a grain of salt. Yeah, but but this is, I mean, and I know you've heard this too, this is the um, this is coming up on decision time for yeah, all of those yeah. groups out there with those tax measures because you know they do have to get something uh, in form. They've got to get it submitted. They've got to start thinking about a campaign. Yep. This period, by I, I would argue, probably by Labor Day, is really where privately these groups have got to decide how many tax measures, if one or more or not. Uh, are going to move forward and what can be supported. Yeah, and that'll trigger legislative hearings in early 2016. I think 2016 really is going to be the year where tax reform is uh, is a dominant political issue. Well, yeah, I, I think where taxes are the dominant political issue. I'm not so sure that I would agree with you that it's going to be reform, given yeah. that some of them are not reform. Well, reform. Reform's a loaded word, right? But even the 30, even the 30 extension isn't going to look exactly like it does. Like it's not going to look exactly like prop 30. It's going to look a little bit different. So yeah, but I think, but I think even if it's an extension versus like a permanent, um, it, it, it won't be able to be talked about much as like some kind of really groundbreaking moment. It's like a continuation of help. Well, this initiative is a, is only would only um, increase those property taxes for twenty years, so it's quote unquote temporary. But anyway, it also but, but just quickly because we need to go. But that but that that does um, also just kind of make me think interesting because so many of the criticisms of the initiative process has been that we put things in place that are there forever and we can't touch them again, and that's like right. a criticism of Prop Thirteen. And so here you've got something that sunsets that goes away. After after a twenty year period, so I don't know. It's a, it's it's a really interesting one. I don't think I don't know what kind of intel you have as to kind of like how the groups would move forward. These are um, poverty advocates from Southern California. They seem to have some kind of uh, alliance with some people in the Democratic world or the Democratic Party world. But how it all um, how it all plays out, I don't know. I do. I just I'm not going to tell you. You have all <laughs> the secrets locked in your mind down there on your big Southern California trip. We That's expect right. you to divulge them when you come back to Sacramento. I'm the sep bladder of California tax policy. That is a very unusual way to end this <laughs> podcast, and I'm going to let it be the end. That's the final word. All right. That is Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project. I'm John Myers from KQED News. As always, we thank you for listening to this California Politics Podcast.